Father, I just pray uh, for each one of our hearts this morning, Lord, that we just might receive what you have to share to us. And God, I know that the hours have been spent investing in the sermon, Lord, do not do justice to the truth you want to speak. And Father, I ask that you intervene in this sermon, you intervene in my, in my words, God, that you would be heard and not me. And God, interrupt any agenda that I have that is, that is not of you, Lord, disrupt it. And let this morning just be a time that people can meditate on your goodness. We might think about the truth of who you are. We might experience that. We might be challenged by that. You are a big God. We trust you with our lives. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Um, So I love to ask the question, why? I think it might be some of that philosopher in me, um, but I love to ask the question, why? So a couple years back, when I was a youth pastor here, um, I used to challenge students with a question. We'd sit around, we'd get ready to eat, and and one student would pray, or some student would pray, and and, and somewhere in the prayer they would say, uh, and bless this food. And afterwards I would ask, "What, what are you praying for when you ask God to bless the food? I mean, we have very like, clear ideas of what we pray for usually when we say, God, you know, get us home safe, safely today. God, uh, help, help us, uh, help, help us to, to be bold this morning as we, as we share or whatever. You know, you can just imagine the, the different requests we have. Usually we have a fairly clear idea of what, we are, of what we are asking God for. But when we pray for food, what are we praying for? God, let these, let these donuts be like vegetables to my body. <laughs> what, what, what are you praying for right, when, you, when you ask us to bless the food? But I, I just love to ask the question, why? Uh, and today we read a psalm, a, song that, a psalm that, that is a song and it is a prayer and, and, it, and it gives this command, just sing praise God to, to God, sing praise, praise God, praise God. And with that same mentality, that same uh, in, inquisitiveness I, I want to draw to us this morning is why. Why praise God? Why do we praise God? Why should we praise God? And we might quickly respond, well, because he's God. And that's what we do, right? We, we, we praise God because that's what, that's what God uh, deserves. He deserves that praise. And so that's what we do. We praise. And I want to remind us this morning that we live in a culture uh, that's shifting. And, and it's actually kind of going back and forth a little bit. Uh, just in terms of its attitude towards religion. But we live in a culture in which it's incredibly uh, less obvious to most people outside of this church, outside of churches in general, about why we should praise God. Or about why uh, the God of the Bible deserves to be praised. Uh, Simply because God is God doesn't mean he deserves to be worshipped. Right? And that's, that's the, the kind of the thinking that we might uh, hear or find outside of, 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 of the walls of the church. I once got in a conversation with a good friend of mine, um, not really a friend anymore, but just years back when I was in college. Um, she wasn't religious at all. She was an atheist. Uh, someone who told me she, she studied religion because she really wanted to attack religion. Uh, and somewhere in this discussion, we were talking about all kinds of things, all kinds of what you might say, like hot topics or hot problems even, um, about Christianity that I think outside, those outside of Christianity have. 
topics about God's wrath, this idea of hell, or maybe why does God allow a big injustice to happen? Why did God allow the Holocaust to happen? And we're in this discussion, and we were talking about all these things. And she said, even if God does exist, I wouldn't worship him. And then she, she turns the question to me. She says, so why do you worship God? Why do you worship a God who lets the Holocaust happen? Why do you worship a God uh, uh, who, who has wrath? Who has, who, who, who has this thing called hell? Why do you worship a God like that? Well, we are reading Psalm 47 today. And as I said, this psalm invokes us and invites us to praise God. And I want us to kind of wrestle with that question. Why, why do we choose to worship a God? Why do we choose to worship this God? And I think this psalm gives us some instruction and some guidance to how to think about that. Um, that this psalm is largely, it's an attempt to lead Israel into, into a place of praise and worship. That's what the psalm is doing. It's, it's, it's this movement trying to rally Israel to praise and worship God. And I want us to see this this morning, that praise is a natural response to encountering God. It is a natural response to encountering God. When somebody encounters God, they are led to praise. It's something that naturally happens in us. When we encounter, when we experience, we grasp the bigness of who God is. It's always been a natural response to a human being encountering the living God. And I don't say this lightly, but I do believe this that I don't think I've met someone who's truly encountered God and was not led to worship God. I don't think I've met someone in my life, and I'm sure you, you could ask the same question. Have you met people in your life who you, you know that that person has experienced God, that person has encountered God in a very real way, and yet they weren't led to worship God? That's not something I see. Well, let's take a look at Psalm 47. We're going to read this together and digest some of these thoughts together this morning. But picking up on, right on verse 1, hear the word of God. It says, clap your hands, all people. Shout to God with the loud songs of joy. For the Lord the Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued people under us and nations under our feet. Now, the psalm does something here uh, that it will do again in a few more verses, but it, it calls us to praise. Just, it's just telling us, clap your hands. Celebrate God. Right? Shout to God. And then it says, for. Just giving kind of this explanation to, explanation for why. Because he, he ought to be feared. Because he is a great king. Because he has done these things for us in the past. Right? It looks for an explanation. It's like saying we worship God because of who he is and what he has done. You'll notice that pattern in these first three verses. Right, right. Celebrate God or worship God, this command to worship God. And then it explains something about who he is and what he has done. Right? Well, that's why we worship God, because of who he is and what he's done. Let's continue to read, picking up in verse 4. It says, uh, he chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sun, sound of a trumpet. Sing praise to God, sing praise. Sing praise to our king, sing praise. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praise with a psalm. 
And here it is again, right? Sing praise. Sing praise. It's the command. It's leading us to do this, right? It's just kind of rally up the people of Israel. It's even rallying up uh, uh, us, the church, this morning. It doesn't pull on a specific experience, but it is simply recognizing who he is. And then it wraps up in verses 8 and 9. It says, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. All right, and as I said, the purpose of the psalm is to energize, is to activate the spirit of worship within his people. Within, within the people of, of Israel at the time and even for us this morning. It is likely that this psalm was written during the reign of one of Judah's king, Jehoshaphat. Specifically believed to be written immediately after this uh, time in which this army had mounted up against uh, uh, Judah. Against, and then they were marching to come and attack and assault uh, Judah. And all these uh, different kingdoms or different people groups kind of gathered together to rally up against, uh, against uh, Judah, against Jehoshaphat, this king. And as, as Jehoshaphat was able to become aware of this oncoming assault, he tells his people, he says, let's pray. Let's pray, let's fast, let's go before God, we need his help. Right, an army is mounting up against us, we need his help. And so they pray, and then they win the battle. And then the psalm was believed to be written immediately after that. It's the response. It's the response of like, God has done something here. Let's not forget to celebrate him. And you can imagine the enthusiasm of the people at the time. Come on, let's celebrate. Let's praise God. He is good. He has protected us. He's kept our walls up. Right? He saved us from these oppressing enemies who want to defeat us, to enslave us, to imprison us. He has been good to us. He has rescued us. He is a good, good God. The author of the psalm is motivating the people to worship. It's directing them to praise. Leading his people to praise, to praise by reflecting on the goodness of who God is and what he has done. Right? That's the pattern I want us to see what's going on in this psalm. Right? Um, I want us to see that this psalm is reflecting on who God is. On the characteristics, on the attributes, on the bigness of God on the grandness of who God is, and yet at the same time reflecting on this experience. For at the, at the time, this experience for Israel is very proximate. Something they just witnessed. It's something they just experienced. Right? But it's recognizing what has God done. Verse uh, 3, it says, Shout to God for the Lord the Most High. And he subdued people under us. Now, not subdued, not in a way in which uh, they have become prisoners to Israel that they have become captives to Israel, but they subdued that he was, they were able to survive the attack against these, this foreign um, army coming against them. Right? But that word for, it's just, it's just this conjunction, it's linking these two ideas. It's essentially saying we worship God because of who he is. We worship God because of what he has done and what he will continue to do. So it's really a, a simple idea. We worship God because of who he is and what he's done. And then the psalm pulls off, uh, and it's, it's own, um, the psalm pulls on its own recent experience. 
on this experience of just surviving this attack that's coming, right? And it's just reflecting on, look at what God has done, even in this moment. Look at how God just rescued us from this, from this, this uh, um, foreign army. Look at how God has been sovereign in our journey, right? And this is something that Israel largely calls upon and looks at over and over again over the, at the time of its life. Looking back, look at what God has done for us. Look at what he's rescued us from. Look at what he's pulled us out of. Right, we can see that this, this trend in our relationship with God and the kind of the thing he does with us. And yeah, there are moments of hardship, but we see what God is doing in the midst of this hardship. We see where God is taking us at the end of those. God is worth praising. He is worth singing to. He's worth adoring. That's what this psalm is drawing our attention to. I want us to understand this critical lesson this morning. That the knowledge, the encounter, and the experience of God brings about the praise of God. Biblically, that is something we see that is very consistent. That when you have this knowledge of God, when you understand who He is, when there's some kind of an encounter with Him, when there's a way in which you experience Him, the fullness, the goodness of Him, right, the response becomes praise. Good theology, good theology leads us to worship God. And theology, as many of us know, is just this word that, that it's, it's the study of God. It's our human way of trying to understand and grasp God through Scripture, through nature, through whatever. But good theology leads us to worship God. A good knowledge of God leads us to worship Him. It will lead us to worship and praise. So I go back to that original question of which I ask. I asked earlier, uh, why should we praise God? And, and if we listen to the claims of, of so many critics of Christianity, uh, we're going to hear them say something, that God, God is not actually beautiful. In fact, he is quite ugly. That God is not um, loving, but he's really just jealous. That God is not merciful, but he is very wrathful. If you might remember a few weeks back, um, I think it was the first sermon I had preached here. Um, in the beginning of the series, I, 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 quoted, I, I shared a quote with you guys from a, from a man named Richard Dawkins. All right, a very famous atheist. Uh, uh, and, he, and he wrote just talking about how jealous and ugly and how, how wrathful and how petty the God of the Bible is. And he, he goes on to say, it's, it's, it's actually quite unfair to attack such an easy target. Right, just kind of this this negative, very poor view of who God is. Um, Sam Harris, right, is another uh, famous atheist who 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 writes about about uh, you know just kind of writes to atheists, kind of share, trying to share some ideas. This is what he says. He says either God can do nothing to stop catastrophes like this, or he doesn't care to, or he doesn't exist. God is either infinite, evil, or imaginary. Take your pick. So if you imagine, for, for someone like him, the question, why we praise worship, it just doesn't make sense. That God, that God is choosing to not do something about the catastrophes, about the problems in our world, or it doesn't exist. Um, the reality is, many don't understand why we choose to worship God. And I think that's largely because many don't understand God. 
Right, that's the thing I want us to see. Part of what I want us to see this morning is that the psalm is saying that, man, uh, when we naturally experience God, when we, or we encounter God, when we, when we grasp who he is, we are led to praise and worship. But if you haven't experienced, if you don't get that, you don't understand why we worship. I've been in uh, numerous uh, settings, you know, both academically, non-academically, where I would listen to people make comments like this, comments like what Harris has said or Dawkins has said, and just to talk about how evil God is. And you, might, and you might even find that they'll kind of rattle off a number of verses that they'll pull up from the Bible, kind of just pulling out a verse that just kind of makes God sound pretty bad. There's actually a website. You can even just Google, you know, just go in and Google uh, bad verses of the Bible, and you're going to find tons of these uh, um, sites that are trying to promote a handful of these verses, bad quotes from the Bible. So kind of get to that it might be a very upsetting to an unsuspecting Christian. And early on in my faith, um, as, I, as I read some of these or read from atheists or read from, you know, critics of Christianity, um, these quotes of the Bible, they shook me. Because I was like, wow, that's pretty harsh. You know, even whole books, like the book of Joshua, there's, there's some stuff in there. You're like, wow, this is really hard to digest, that God would do this, that God would say this. Sounds pretty violent. Um, but I think some of this is what contributed early on to an era of doubt in my life. But something happened in my faith. Something towards the end of my college years, even right after uh, college, um, I began to really study Scripture. Like, really study Scripture. I took it for what it is. I looked at the story as God's story. As this, this, is, this is a plot line. This is a, a picture of, of God's plan for redemption for humanity. And I began to earnestly seek God. This um, experiencing God went from being something that uh, I would just like to have happened. Right? I think there's a lot of things that we would just like to do in our life. I would love or just even like to go to Egypt at some point in time. I remember once hearing a friend of mine talk about how he, he bribed a guard 20 bucks so that he could climb up the pyramid. And I remember thinking, I would just love like to do that someday. I'd like to just go climb up the pyramid. Right, that's something I'd like to do. But something happened in my life where wanting to experience and encounter God just went beyond this thing that I would just like to happen. And it became something that I starved for. It became something that I really hungered for and I really labored for. I didn't just want to experience God. I, this it became something that I, I craved. That it shift behaviors in my life. All of a sudden, I really, really wanted to know God. And not just the God that pastors talk about on Sunday morning. Not just the God that um, sweet Christian books will write about. Not just the, 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 not just the God of what other Christians uh, see or, or, or maybe share uh, in, in simple ways. I wanted to know God personally. I wanted to experience God personally. I wanted to encounter his reality. And in this personal journey, what I began to discover is that this God that many depict isn't the God that I was pursuing it isn't the God that was in the Bible. It is not the God that was or is or is to come. This, this picture of God that Dawkins had, that Harris had, that Daniel Dennett, all these people, these kind of famous atheists out there, these like 
pastors of atheism, of modern-day atheism, that I was reading and thinking and wrestling with, I realized, like, what they're talking about God is something very different than what I was pursuing and something that I was discovering. Right, I realized that their perception of God wasn't accurate. And through this, this very small analysis led me to this conclusion. Um, they had a poor perspective of God. They had a very poor perspective of God. Um, people reject the gospel because of something they don't understand. Because there's something that they, they believe that is off or something they don't know, there's something that isn't, they don't understand, or maybe they believe something that isn't true about the God of the Bible, about Scripture, about Christianity as a whole. Um, one of the things that, that really spoke to me um, was actually, I heard it from, a, I think initially from a sermon from Tim Keller and then later from a, a book by Tim Keller, a pastor, as you can say, a retired pastor now uh, in New York City. But he has this challenge, and he says, tell me about the God you don't believe in. Because it's likely I don't believe in that God either. Right? And as, as, as I look at this, this picture of what, you know, these critics of Christianity had, and I looked at that, I analyzed that, and I thought, man, that, that is not the God that I understand. That's not the God that we see in Scripture. It's a poor view of God. And if you were just to pull out some random passages where you would see God's fury, you're going to have a misinformed view of God. You're going to miss the whole character of God, the goal of God, the purpose of God. And I want to be clear, it's not just about the verses about his fury. You might even just pull out the verses about his mercy. You might just cherry pick about these verses about, uh, that they're kind of talking about the blessings of God. And I want to then construct this view of God that is simply not true. Isolated, selective, or agenda-ridden views of God will lead to a very narrow understanding of God. Anytime we scan through Scripture and we just want to find the handful of things that fit our agenda, we're constructing a narrow view of God. That isn't good theology. That isn't the theology that's going to lead us to true worship. Right? When we cherry pick like that and we throw out the rest, we're constructing a narrow view of God. Whether you're highlighting uh, the fury of God and, and the justice of God or whether you're highlighting the mercy of God and the kindness of God, right? you're cherry picking one way or the other. I have an incredible dad. I love my dad. He's a fantastic dad. Uh, I've learned so much uh, about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a father. Um, I love watching him be a grandfather. Right? There's so much inspiration. My dad is a wonderful businessman. Right? He's great at projects around the house. I mean, there's so many things I can go on and on and talk about my dad. He's a very loving dad. Um, but he had, especially early on, some anger issues. Right? Not violently angry, but just would get angry specifically at his computer. So our, so we, we are, we, I grew up with two brothers, so the three of us, and we were all kind of, you know, piled into one room that was like right next to uh, my dad's office. He worked at, uh, at home as a software engineer, so, you know, 20, 25 years ago, whatever, uh, and computers would like break if you push two buttons at once, right, and it'd freeze up. Uh, and I remember all the days we're sitting in our room, peacefully sitting there, and we just hear my dad explode at a computer, and we'd hear him banging on the keyboard and throwing things around. 
right? Um, if, if that's the only picture if I had of God, if I just pulled that, sorry, God, that's the only picture I had of my dad. If I just pulled that out, I would have a completely broken understanding of who my dad is. Right? I would have a completely broken understanding of that. And yet there's times in which my dad had a very healthy anger. And if I never talked about that either, and I never saw that either, I would have a narrow view of my dad one way or the other. Right? If I cherry-pick these experiences, I'm going to create a poor view of my father. And in the exact same way, right, we cherry-pick views of God, we're going to get a narrow view of God. Good theology, a good study of God, seeks to understand the whole of who God is. The whole of who God has revealed that he is. Yes, there is fury. Yes, there is discipline. Yes, there is correction. But the whole of Scripture proves to us that his fury is a part of his love, his discipline is a part of his love, his correction is a part of his love. We see that. It's a part of his justice. His sometimes, what we, what we feel is his felt silence is a part of his perfect loving plan for us. Uh, many of us, Right? Especially the longer you are as a Christian, there are season which we, seasons which we will go through. And in which you felt like there's this presence of God, and then all of a sudden things go on in your life, and it seems like that's gone. And it seems like God is quiet. And it seems like God is absent. There are seasons which we feel that. You can read about it in, in from Mother Teresa herself. She talked about there's, there's a season, which she called the dark night of the soul. A season in which God just, where are you? I'm walking and I don't, I don't feel you in this moment. We don't understand it in the, mom, in the moment, but mature Christians know and they can look back and they get it. I see that this is a part of God's perfect loving plan. And it's worked out well. It's worked out well. Good theology grasps this whole view of God. It understands that there's this pain, there's this discipline, there's sometimes heartache, sometimes seasons of loss. There are all these different seasons of life. And they are part of this perfect, loving plan. Good theology understands, it discovers, and it knows, it experiences that God is good. That God is good, that he is worth, worthy of our praise. But on the other hand, a poor theology, a poor perspective of God, a poor view and understanding of God will constantly struggle to praise and worship him. Because something looks off. Something is unsettling. Um, If your view of God is entirely based off cheap Christian sayings without any kind of depth, or that has been built on words of others, and there's no personal experience for yourself, you will struggle to praise and worship God in the times when your life is in a desert. If your view of God is entirely based on all these little cheap Christian sayings or just you know nice sermons that make you feel good and you go home, when you're in any kind of a trial, you're going to find yourself really struggling to worship and praise God. And when someone wants to attack your faith, you're going to struggle to to, to believe in God when you have a poor view, a cheap view of God. 
when you have cheap theology. Because you're going to have the selective, limited view of who God is. One that's not compatible with the whole view of who God is. If you have a selective view of God, you're going to struggle to love God. To really love God. Especially when you face cancer. Especially when a child dies unexpectedly. Especially when you're going through bankruptcy. When any kind of a tragedy hits in your life, right? If you've had this small, tiny, you know, selective view of God, any kind of tragedy hits your life, you're going to really struggle to love God. And you're going to feel like you have every reason to walk away from your faith. Because then that limited view of God, one that's been built on cheap theology, is going to be tested. And God is so much bigger than that. The Bible is full of hardship, real hardship, unexpected losses, depression, struggles, waiting, lots of waiting. There's a lot of waiting in the Bible. Sometimes we feel like we've waited a long time when like two weeks have gone by. Like read the Bible, like really read it. And you're like, 40 years? Am I going to be alive? I told the class recently. There's a, there's a I teach a class full of interns at a somewhere else, and um, that came up. It's 40 years of waiting, and I knew there's a bunch of you know, uh, it's a mixed class, but there are a couple of girls in there who's always talking about they're looking for a husband, and I'm like, well, you'll have to wait, maybe 40 years. <laughs> um, but but there, but the Bible depicts this full view, uh, a full view of life. There's hardships, there's waiting, there's silence, there's brokenness, unexpected losses. And it should, yet it shows us there's this whole view of God's love. What it shows us is that God redeems brokenness. That God redeems brokenness. And understand, redeem, redemption, it isn't just when God undoes something. That something went wrong and then God fixes it, and so now it's no longer wrong. He just undid it, right? Um, God just doesn't undo our failures. It's not what God does. Redemption is God taking something broken and molding it like clay, taking clay and molding it and stretching it and pulling it, softening it, shaping it so that it becomes something better. He makes it more beautiful than it was before. He makes it more holy than it was before. That's what redemption is. And that's what God does. He takes bad things, broken things, hard things, difficult things, painful things. And in the course of your spiritual journey, he molds that. He molds you. To make you more beautiful, you more holy, you more righteous. Our lives are full of brokenness. Our lives are completely full of brokenness. And what God is doing in our life is he's taking that brokenness, he's taking that pain, he's taking that sin, and he's just fixing us to make it better, to make us better. 
a whole view of God, a good theology, understands redemption. That understands what redemption means in our life. It understands what redemption means in our brokenness and even in our sin. Now, there's this logical fallacy known as straw manning. Uh, straw manning is, is when, you, when, you, it's when you take someone's argument and, in, and explain it in kind of an incorrect, distorted, or maybe a weaker view. Because then it becomes easier to attack. Right? So if I have some disagreement with someone and I'm speaking publicly, I can say, well, this is what they're saying. But yet I depict it in a, in a distorted way. In a way that doesn't sound as strong, it's not as logical, not as concrete. It's a false view of what they're saying. It's a false view of what, they, what they're arguing. Well, that now becomes a lot easier for me to attack it. It becomes a lot easier for me to, to critique it. Right? You set up a false position and it becomes easier to attack it. Uh, it's like pri- pretty much like the primary way in which like politicians debate, right? right? Pick what side, it doesn't matter, right? They just, they, they, they're kind of notorious for what we call strawmanning, right? Uh, it's describing a false view. And it becomes easier to attack and also becomes easier to persuade people against, right? It's a logical fallacy. It means you know, bad logic, don't do it. Right, that's, you're not going to convince. Uh, you're not going to convince the wise people by doing it that way. Right, don't do that. All right, it's bad because you're no longer dealing with reality. Um, here, here's my challenge for us this morning: Don't strawman God in any way. Right? Don't 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 look at God and just pretend like you don't see the stuff in that, that Bible that shows a kind of righteous theory. And don't don't also at the same time t- take a picture of God that doesn't uh, that doesn't acknowledge His holistic plan. Right? Don't don't look at God and say, God will never put me through hardship. Have you read the Book of Job? There's hardship. There's real, real, real hardship in there. Don't just seek the God that people depict. I don't just seek a God that people depict or that people have made up. Whether it's an atheist or a pastor, seek God himself. Seek who God has revealed himself to be. There's a lot of atheists out there whose heart is, is just set on discrediting and attacking the God of the Bible. And there's a lot of pastors out there who want to depict this simple, clean, and I think a cheap view of God. God won't let bad things to ha- happen to you. God wants you to be rich. God wants you to have everything. God just wants you to live abundantly with all this money. Right? God doesn't want you to be sick. Right? It's just this, this view that, that isn't the whole view of God. Don't straw man God. Here's a better picture of God, I think, one that's very consistent with Scripture. Yes, God loves you exactly as you are, but too much to leave you there. And he will let you endure hardship. He will let you endure trials. He will let you endure deserts to grow your holiness. God loves you exactly as you are, but too much to leave you there. And he's going to let you endure all kinds of trials and hardships and burdens and deserts and storms because he wants to grow your holiness. 
Those deserts and storms in your lives are a part of God's process of a redemptive story in your life. To restore, to make it better. To make you better. It's a part of this loving plan for you. Good theology leads us to praise. Right, it leads us to praise because that, that, that knowledge and that encounter, that experience of God brings us to praise God because we get that. We get what God is doing in our life, not just in the good seasons, but even in the hard ones. Good theology leads you to praise God both in the mountains and in the valleys, in the still waters and during the storms. I want us to be people who really want to know God personally. Right, to really seek him in the quiet moments of our life, in the full moments of our life, to seek him in our trials and our storms, to seek him when we're in joy and when we're in hardship. Because I, I want us to be people who grasp and understand that he is worthy of praise, that he is worth pursuing. This, this re- redemption that he brings in our life, it's powerful and it's real. Israel had its own journey. I mean, the whole Bible is depicting this whole journey that that Israel had with God. But specifically in this psalm, we can see there's this very specific journey that it experienced. It experienced a hardship and fear. Can you imagine the kind of a fear you'd have when this massive army is coming towards your city and they want to wipe you out? They want to enslave you. They want to scatter you. They want to separate families. They want to kill the, the, kill the parents, rape the women. Right? You can imagine the kind of fear that, that, that is being built up in a nation and a city even, just as that, that's coming towards them. There's fear there. But there's a real journey of prayer, which then becomes praise. Right? Um, Israel had its own journey. Not just the journey that we see in Psalm 47, but this journey, the journey out of Egypt, the journey into the land, right? This is this journey that it has. Right? And what it is, it's, it's, it's looking and it's expressing and it's this experience that God has been loving, that God has been good to us. That's what the Psalms are doing. And this Psalm specifically is inviting Israel, sing praise for God has been good. Sing praise for he is king. Sing praise for God is God. Sing praise because he's worth it. The psalm is leading Israel to that same motion. I turn the question to you now. What reasons do you have to praise God? What has your story been with Jesus? What has your real, whole, full story been Um, If you were to lead your own heart the way this psalm leads Israel, what would your words be? If you were going to write a psalm to your heart, singing, sing praise to God, sing praise, sing praise because he is good, what would your words be? What would your words be to your own soul? Sing praise, dear soul, for God has never given up on you. Sing praise, dear soul, for God has never relented to stretch you. Sing praise, dear soul, for God has never failed to listen to you. 
Sing praise, dear soul, for God has been faithful in every trial. And maybe it wasn't the timing I expected or the way I expected, but it was good. God's faithfulness was good. What would your words be to your own soul? I'm going to be closing here in a minute, and the worship band is going to be coming back up. But I want to challenge you uh, during this, this, these next uh, couple of songs to reflect on, uh, on, on, to reflect on that. To reflect on these questions specifically. What do I have to praise God for? What has been my journey with God so far? Where has God taken me so far? How has God been faithful to me? Reflect on God's love in your life. Reflect on what God has revealed about himself both in scripture and in your experiences. And then my challenge to you, write your own psalm to your soul. You have a pen and paper, if not even just your phone, text it to yourself. What would your psalm to your soul be? If you were to, 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 to cheer on, to instigate, to, to, to create an enthusiasm within your heart to praise God, what would the words be to your own soul? Sing praise, for God has been good. What would your words be? I, I invite you to take part of this, uh, this, this uh, exercise or not. Or maybe just sit and meditate or sing and praise. But, but take time. Seriously, take these, this next few minutes of worship to see God. Reflect on God's story in your life. Re- reflect and celebrate on his goodness. Let that be the thing that leads you to praise him. Amen? Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you, Lord, that we have opportunity to read your word, to see how you've shaped so many lives before us. And I, God, I, I thank you, we thank you, Lord, that you have been so involved in each one of our lives. God, our faith is real. Our experiences are real. Again and again, we we can look and we can see the power you have had in our life, the changes you've made in our life, the ways you've shaped us, the ways you've taken the brokenness and you've made it something better. And Father, I ask that you challenge our hearts in the next minutes to come. God, challenge some of us to write our own psalm to our soul. Or God, just press this, um, press the truth of your goodness against us so that, God, that we might, we might react naturally in praise and worship. God, don't let a single one of us be bored in the next minutes to come. Father, you are good. We love you, Father. We thank you, Father. We ask that this this morning as we leave, God, this experience of praise and worship, this just movement we've 
encountered in our own hearts and in our own minds, that that would become something as we go out into the world around us. That we might be agents of your grace, agents of your love. Father, thank you.